Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, March 2nd, 2021. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news and answering a listener question in the mailbag. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. And writer Chris Evangelista. Hi. All right, guys, let's jump into the news first. Chris, uh, we learned yesterday some news about San Diego Comic-Con 2021. What did we learn? Uh, we learned that it will once again be virtual like it was last year. And I, I'm pretty sure we all kind of guessed this would happen. But uh, yeah, they made it official. Um, it's going to be a three day event spanning July 23rd through the 25th, 2021 uh, online, just like it was last year. That's a smaller that's, that's like a downsizing, right? Yeah, it's going to be they said they reduced it to a three day event this time. I think we talked about this, you know, when um, Comic-Con 2020 was happening, the first Comic-Con at home, um, and we were sort of speculating into the future about whether or not this might happen again. And I think we probably talked about, you know, how we would feel about that at the time. But um, since that's been, you know, many months now, um, Chris, I I know that you've covered Comic-Con in person before. How do you feel about the idea of, of, uh, I guess, a second year in a row of virtual Comic-Con? Um. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, for the best, you know, there's, I mean, I don't love Comic-Con to begin with. So even if it was in person, I would, I wouldn't be like, Ooh, Comic-Con, but, um, it's, it's better to do it this way than, than risk, uh, super spreader events. But, uh, I do remember last year's virtual Comic-Con was kind of blah. Uh, the, the DC fandom was much better, surprisingly. So mm-hmm. I'm hoping they, uh, the organizers learned from the experience and will find a way to make this year's version a little more exciting. I guess it really all depends on who's going to be there, who, you know, who wants to even bother with it and all that stuff. Yeah. And I'm curious, like the people who do decide to show up the, the studios and stuff, are they just going to be bringing, you know, uh, 
like projects that we've known about for years and years because like part of the fun of comic-con is like learning about new stuff and seeing you know footage that you've never seen but for a lot of these projects that have just been like bumped and bumped and bumped because of covid um you know we've already seen multiple trailers for this stuff so at a certain point we're like getting into uh you know that that period that happens for every major blockbuster like in the week before it comes out when like you know every day there's a new tv spot or something uh, where there's just more and more footage and you feel more and more like you've seen the entire thing without actually seeing the movie so um yeah i'm curious what's going to happen here jacob what do you what do you make of this what i make of it is that i don't <laughs> every year i dread having to cover comic con but then I end up really enjoying myself and, and looking forward to doing it again for about six months. Then I spend six months dreading it. So there's a tinge of sadness to this that I won't be able to go on the ground and cover it again. But, I, you know, I also think that canceling it or putting it online is the right choice. But I will say after two years off at this point, I'm, I'm going to be very much ready to cover it again when it rolls around. So fingers crossed things that act together for 2022 at this rate. Jeez. Yeah, it says in this uh, official statement that the the organizers released that uh, they're happy to announce that San Diego Comic-Con um, is planning to present a three-day in-person convention in San Diego in November, um, but there are no specific details about the capacity or how much that will cost or who's going to show up there. Um Jacob, I, I know that you like, you know, you, you are especially fond of the city of San Diego. I know that you like, you know, carve out time every year to just like go do some exploring and stuff like that. For this three day thing, is that something that you might be interested in? Like, theoretically, you know, things will be a little bit better uh, in November than they will be this summer. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, if things are better, I mean, I'll have my second vaccine, you know, within a few weeks. So, I, But I also want to make sure I'm I don't want to go somewhere where, where things will get worse or become worse. So mm -hmm. if the site needs me there and things look safe in November, you know, I would San Diego's great. I, I really, really miss taking two days off and San Diego early and seeing the sites. So uh, Ben, don't tease me of this optimistic future. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, our next story is, um, is going to be pretty short because there's not much uh, by way of, you know, hard concrete facts here, but we do know that there's been some casting news for uh, Disney and Lucasfilms, uh, or Disney Plus's and Lucasfilm's Obi-Wan Kenobi TV show. Uh, Indira Varma has been cast to join that series. And if you don't recognize that actress by name, you'll probably know her best for playing Ilaria Sand on Game of Thrones. She was the sort of scheming and, and ruthless paramour to Oberyn Martell um, and, and in the, the whole Dorne Sand Snakes subplot. Um, she let loose this piercing scream uh, during a very, very famous event in uh, Game of Thrones history that um, is just like seared into my brain. Um, and she's been in a bunch of other stuff too. She's she's appeared in Rome and Luther and Carnival Row and Torchwood and the one and only Ivan and many other things. Um, we have no idea what character she's going to be playing. Uh, I just wanted to bring this up because I believe she's only the third official cast member announced for the show, aside from Ewan McGregor, who's coming back to play Obi-Wan Kenobi, and Hayden Christensen, who's coming back to play Darth Vader in this series. Um, and like I said, there's there's no details about who she's going to be playing yet. Um, we were talking right before we started recording and trying to figure out Obi-Wan Kenobi's romantic history in the comics and, and uh, you know, outside of the live action movies, basically. And um, there are some characters that he sort of has history with. I guess he was, 
what had had a love interest. Um, I think her name is Satine Cries Crees. I, I have not seen uh, Star Wars Rebels or, or Clone Wars, so I don't know uh, the ins and outs of that relationship. But it seems like this character is not going to appear in uh, the Obi Wan Kenobi live action uh, show on Disney Plus. So I guess we can cross that out as a as a possibility. Um, but uh, Varma is a really solid actress, so I'm, I'm excited to see her become you know the latest. Game of Thrones performer to, uh, you know, take a jump from Westeros into a galaxy far, far away. There are tons and tons of <laughs> performers who have uh, appeared in in both, um, you know, fictional universes there. So, uh, yeah, I just wanted to mention that real quick. Um, if anybody has any speculation or ideas about who she might be playing, I'd love to hear them. So if you want to email us, you can do that at peter at slashhome.com. Um, I'd love to know if you have any any suggestions or anything uh, deep cuts from the Star Wars lore and mythos that I might not be aware of. Ben, she's um, playing R two D two clearly. <laughs> she's gonna crawl into the metal tin can and operate it. I mean, we, we all, I mean, she's a gorgeous woman. She's a talented actress. We're all acting like she's gonna be a, a love interest or something when clearly her talents are better used puppeteering R two D two. I can't believe you didn't see this, Ben. Yeah, you're absolutely right. What a what a boneheaded move. Um, Speaking of potentially boneheaded moves, uh, there's a, a new reboot coming down the, the pike uh, next year. Chris, tell us about that. Uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night, the 1984 horror movie about a killer Santa Claus is getting a remake for 2022. Um, no one's really attached to it yet. There's no writer or anything like that, but we just know it's in the works. So is this a dumb decision, Chris, or do you think this might actually be a smart thing? Uh, this this has potential. Um, the original Silent Night, Deadly Night is is not very good, and none of the sequels are very good either. Um, it's, it's more a film that's known because of its controversy. When it arrived in 1984, uh, there were a lot of protests against it because all the marketing was, you know, Santa Claus with an axe and, and parents groups and all that stuff were outraged and the movie ended up getting pulled from theaters after a week, but that kind of uh, inadvertently helped the film out because it just built this reputation and it became a sort of cult favorite and it, it spawned all these sequels. And there's really not a whole lot to the original movie. It's about um, a guy uh, when he's a kid, he watches his parents get killed by someone dressed as Santa Claus on Christmas Eve and he grows up to be emotionally disturbed. And then one Christmas he snaps and he puts on a Santa Claus costume and he starts killing people. And that's literally it. There's, there's really nothing more to the story. So uh, you could potentially take that springboard and, and, you know, use it to create something clever or something fun. Um, you know, I always feel like you shouldn't remake a good movie. You should take a, a, a a shitty movie that had an uh, interesting concept and try and do something better with it. So I, I hope that's what happens here, but it's, I guess it's a little too early to tell how it's going to all turn out. I have heard of this movie, but I don't really, I've never seen it and I don't know anything about the, uh, the controversy that you're just talking about. This is news to me. So I'm curious, Chris, do you know anything about like the, have you like drilled down into the details of what people were actually furious about at the time? Were they just like, it was Santa Claus is the guy that's on the Coke can. You're, you're destroying the sanctity of this Christmas creation. Like what? what? It it was literally that it was literally because all the marketing, I mean, I'm sure you're aware there's like the poet, the famous poster where, you see like Santa's hand with an ax going down a chimney and 
you know, without really knowing what the movie was, everyone just locked onto that and we're like, oh, this is bad for children to show <laughs> Santa. Basically, the argument was people thought the movie was about the, I guess, the real Santa Claus <laughs> killing people. And that's not, you know, it, technically it's a guy dressed as Santa. It's not supposed to be the real Santa. So, uh, but that was basically the controversy. And I, a lot of the controversy was also sort of hyped up by the people who made the movie because they knew it would be good for them. And, mm. and it was so, you know, I see. Uh, Jacob, have you seen silent night, deadly night? What do you think about this reboot? I've seen the first two and, uh, they're, they're really bad. The second one, especially, uh, if you've ever seen the garbage day meme on YouTube, you've seen the only part of uh, part two worth seeing. Uh, it's more interesting than good. I think the hype around it or the controversy around it is more interesting than the movie itself. So it's the exact kind of thing that you should remake, remake bad stuff and try to make it good. <laughs> That's my two cents on this. I have, I think anybody who thinks the original movies are actually good should probably see more movies. And this one will probably be better by default because not only is the original bad, it is badly made. So Killer Santa Claus, there's been a lot of them over the years. Just do another one. Just do a better one. Okay. Sounds like you and Chris are on the same page there. Um, All right. So our last news story involves uh, the CEO of Disney talking a little bit about uh, the future of, I guess, theatrical release windows. Um, Jacob, Brad wrote an article about this. Can you summarize it for us? Yeah. Bob Chapek, the CEO of Disney, uh, spoke at a virtual investment conference, and he said the following. The consumer is probably more impatient than they've uh, ever been before, particularly since now they've had the luxury of an entire year of getting titles at home uh, much when they want them. So I'm not sure it's going back, but we certainly don't want uh, anything like, uh, excuse me, but we certainly don't want to do anything like cut off the legs of theatrical exhibition run. So he's pretty much saying that the genie's out of the bottle. People have, are really used to <laughs> this new COVID world of things arriving either on VOD or streaming or shortly after a limited theatrical run. And Shabak himself is admitting that, you know, we may have turned a corner here. And as Brad cites in the article, Universal was the first one to make drastic changes last year, cutting the theatrical window to 17 days. Warner Brothers sending their entire slate to HBO Max. Paramount just announced that Mission Impossible 7, Quiet Place 2, and Top Gun Maverick will be heading to Paramount Plus 45 days after theaters. And, Disney's been flirting with us already. They have movies like Raya and the Last Dragon and Mulan being available for an extra fee on Disney Plus, or movies like Soul and Hamilton going right to Disney Plus. And we've Disney, you know, is top of the pack right now. That they're the ones calling most of the shots in Hollywood and, and how people are reacting to all these big changes. And Disney's been kind of sitting on the sidelines. I think Chapek admitting that, yeah, this is can't put his toothpaste back in the tube, is an admission that theaters when they do open. It's going to be a very different experience. And I think the way we consume media, you know, in the years ahead is permanently altered. Am I, do you agree, Ben? Yeah, I think so. I think you bring up a really good point in in that Disney is the one who is sort of at the top of the pack. And, you know, what they say, I feel like has, um, you know, extra weight uh, because of that sort of leadership position that they hold in the industry right now. Um, I'm curious what you think about, like, uh, you know, when, when, HBO Max and, and Warner Brothers made that announcement about the simultaneous releases in 2021. I think that was in December when that happened. And so now that we're, you know, into March and we've, we've got two months behind us of this experiment and, you know, we've had some time to sort of see how movies like Judas and the Black Messiah and the new Tom and Jerry film uh, have rolled out and, and sort of been experienced by the public at large. 
Um, Jacob, what do you think about the idea? Um, I, I guess I'm asking for like an updated, uh, uh, you know, um, prediction from you about uh, what we talked about before when this announcement first came out, which was like, we thought that HBO, that this was like a, um, you know, a scenario that is going to continue forward beyond just the year 2021 with uh, the with Chapix comments here and what we've seen thus far. Do you still think that's going to be the case? Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't see how things go back. I don't see how, how this past year doesn't change things permanently going forward. I don't see how Universal and Paramount and Warner Brothers and Disney can make these changes, look at the audience reaction and, and realize that things have to go back the way they were. I mean, I get, I don't know how much money putting like, you know, the little things on, on HBO max actually made Warner Brothers. I don't know how that tipped the needle in terms of subscribers, but I have a gut feeling that more people watch the little things on HBO max than they would have in theaters. And that's surely the kind of, you know, uh, disruptive Netflix energy that everybody's been chasing, you know, for five, six, seven years now. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't look as Brad pointed out in his article. Disney made a, just over eleven billion dollars at the box office in 2019 before COVID hit and changed everything. And there's no way Disney Plus, even with Premier Access titles, can replicate eleven billion dollars in a year. Uh, so things are going to change. The question is what balance do the studio strike to try to make sure that $11 billion still happens, but you're also paying with Disney plus. Yeah. Um, Chris, I'm curious, do you have any, any thoughts about this, especially that last point from Jacob? Like what kind of balance do you think? Uh, what, I guess, what do you think the the landscape is going to look like? Um, you know, when we get into 2022 and, and hopefully, you know, the worst of this pandemic is behind us and we're trying to like settle into the groove of a new normal. Do you think it is going to like, do you think there's going to be a, an industry standard um, in terms of these theatrical release windows? Or do you think it's just going to be sort of this piecemeal thing where every, every studio is doing it differently? I think it's going to be the piecemeal uh, approach. I, I really, I can't say with any certainty how it's going to shake out, but I do agree that, it's going to be impossible to like go back to the old ways whenever this is over and who knows when that's going to be. So <laughs> I, I, I really doubt, uh, I mean, some studios might want to just be like, all right, let's go back to exactly how we were doing this before. But I, I have real doubts that uh, all of them are going to try that. Yeah. All right. Let's jump into the mailbag for our final segment today. Um, let's see. Leanne R writes, uh, hi slash on daily cast. I've enjoyed hearing your recommendations for cult classics, as well as your highlight on black shows slash creators for an upcoming mailbag question. I was just listening to the mailbag episode for the slash film cast with David Shen, Devendra Hardwar and uh, Jeff Kanata. And they briefly discussed some two hander films. Can you guys list or recommend any favorite two handers? Thank you. Um, I, I don't know if you guys have, I have not had a chance to listen to that slash film cast episode. So I apologize in advance if, you know, we're just covering the exact same ground here. Um, but just to sort of level the playing field, make sure that we're all, we are all on the same page. Uh, two handers as defined by variety is just a play or movie with two characters. Um, I'm sure we'll have some, you know, little tweaks here and there that we can apply to this, uh, this definition if we want to. But um, I'm just curious what you guys think for me, the, the first thing that came to mind was uh, Richard Linklater's before trilogy, which is, you know, uh, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy as Jesse and Celine, this couple who, uh, or these two, these two people who sort of like meet and fall in love on a train and then wander around in the, the city of Vienna. And then the, the, uh, the 
subsequent movies track their the uh, evolution of their relationship um and it's just a lot of the the movies the the glory and and magic of those movies is just these two people like walking around cities just talking um together and there are some other characters that pop up here and there um there's a, a lengthy uh meal sequence i think it's like a lunch sequence in greece in the third film that comes to mind but um for the most part the like I said, the sort of central focus of the film is, is these two characters. I feel like this, the, that trilogy sort of qualifies in this uh, two-hander category. Um, Chris, do you have anything that comes to mind? Uh, I wrote down The Lighthouse. That's I feel like that's a very good example of this. The recent uh, Robert Eggers, Willem Dafoe, Robert Pattinson movie where they're in a lighthouse and they go crazy and they drink a lot. And uh, it's great. It's a great movie. I don't know, Chris, that seagull. I feel like that counts as a third character. I'm well, not, to, not to sure. be fair, I think two handers doesn't necessarily mean there are only two characters. I think it means there are two characters who are equally important. Oh, OK. It's All not right. just like there's not just a main character and a bunch of supporting characters. There's just like two main characters. And that's that's I know you were kidding, Ben. I'm not trying to be like, <laughs> no, Ben, actually. But I, I do think. In in my defense, that that that's how I would define two handers. Yeah, Seagull definitely has some presence, yeah. so I feel like he counts. Um, okay, Jacob, what about you? Yeah, I got a few actual two handers and one that I'm cheating on. Uh, yeah, first two hander, uh, Gravity, the Alfonso Cuarón movie uh, that stars Sandra Bullock and George Clooney, but mostly Sandra Bullock floating through space, uh, survives on two characters and a lot of special effects. If you want. and I, I love that. <laughs> If you watch the making of that movie, it's literally those two actors like suspended in front of screens. Like it's almost experimental theater before it becomes <laughs> a major blockbuster movie. Mm-hmm. And I do think the movie works because of those two and the dynamic. So uh, Gravity is a good expensive example of that. A science fiction movie, not as big or as grand, but um, equally powerful. Uh, it, Moon, the Duncan, the Duncan Jones movie that stars Sam Rockwell and Sam Rockwell. Uh, <laughs> a man working on the moon and his clone. Uh, really, really terrific. And I guess you could say there's a third character who's a robot, uh, but it's mostly Sam Rockwell and Sam Rockwell. And I continue to be kind of amazed by how the movie pulls off a man interacting with himself for, you know, a feature length movie. Uh, Antichrist, a movie I have a hard time recommending to everybody because it's, it's a Lars von Trier movie, which means it's intense and upsetting and troublesome in a lot of ways. Uh, but Willem Dafoe, apparently the master of these two handers and Charlotte Gainsborough, uh, are both terrific in it, and it's just this nightmarish. Uh, make a double feature with with a lighthouse in terms of movies about bad roommates, people you do not want to be stuck in an isolated place with. Antichrist and lighthouse are. Um, you'll ask Chris, Chris, which ha- which place would you rather be stuck in the the lighthouse and lighthouse or the house from Antichrist? Uh, I guess the lighthouse because the lighthouse has alcohol. That's the only thing <laughs> I can think of between the two of them. I mean. <laughs> I, you know, I love Charlotte Gainsbourg, but I don't want her to mutilate me. So I guess I'd have to go with the lighthouse. Right. And one more, I'm cheating on this one because it's more of a one-hander uh, with various guest stars. But this is uh, Locke, the Stephen Knight film from 2013 starring Tom Hardy. My favorite Tom Hardy performance um, where Tom Hardy is alone in a car for the entire movie taking phone calls with people who you never see. You only hear them. And why he's driving and where he's driving uh, is spoilers but is tom hardy doing great accent just riveting bouncing on people's voices uh for like 90 minutes 
uh, am I cheating by putting Locke here as a two-hander when it's more of a one-hander, guys? No, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned this because I that just inspired me to remember, you know, that I feel like this kind of counts because there are other movies that are like primarily one-handers but have a character interacting with somebody else either, yeah, like on the phone, like in Locke, or I'm thinking also of uh, Buried, the Ryan Reynolds movie where he's in a coffin um, talking, on, talking on the phone with somebody. And then there, you know, there could be, this is what I was talking about in terms of like stretching the definition a little bit. I think you're, I think you're fitting in right, right in that sweet spot, Jacob. Um, there's also like the idea of a primarily one character interacting with somebody in like flashbacks or memories or something. And, uh, like 127 hours, I think would be a good example of that. And then maybe like, um, you know, <laughs> interacting with a quote unquote character, like not even a human, but like uh, maybe a volleyball, for example, like Castaway. I feel like kind of the majority of Castaway. That one, that one's probably stretching a little bit too far because Helen Hunt's in it and there are other characters in, in the sort of like bookend portions of the movie. But for like a majority of the film is just Tom Hanks and a volleyball. So, um, yeah, Chris, did you have any any thoughts about like the, uh, the strictness of the definition there? Do, do you think about like uh, movies with primarily one person talking on the phone or something like that, did those count as two-handers? You know, I want everyone to be happy. So whatever you want the definition of two-hander to be, listeners, that's <laughs> what it is. Whatever makes you happy at home, that's what I want. Oh, I just can, thought about another you, one. Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was, was going to say, I, I saw two TV episodes where this applies very, very well. Um, mm. Breaking Bad's Fly, or it's just um, – Walter and Jesse uh, hunting for a fly in the meth lab for an entire episode, uh, and and the, I can't remember, a blade of grass from season three of Pain Dreadful, which I just finished on my rewatch, which is just Eva Green's character and her orderly in a flashback in a, ment- in a mental hospital. The entire episode is those two alone in a in her cell, although occasionally her uh, the other actor plays Satan as well because he's possessed by Satan at one point. So it's a has three characters but two actors. So wow. take from that what you will. Oh my god, I really need to to make some time for Penny Dreadful. It sounds like um, I was just going to say that I, I was thinking about one more as we were talking. Um, does Misery count? The uh, Kathy Bates, James Con. Yeah, I, I would say it does. There are occasional other characters who pop up in Misery, but it's really. James Conn and Kathy Bates for I would say like ninety eight percent of the film. So I would the, say it the counts. book is definitely a two man because those characters who are added for the movie aren't even in the book or are in the book for about a page before they die. <laughs> what about Gerald's game? Is that sort of the same kind of thing, or is that like are there too many? There's uh, too many additional characters. Supporting. Okay. That. There's like a bunch of flashbacks with her, her family, and there's a. <laughs> there's like a serial killer called the moonlight man there's a there's a bunch of people in the stories so. <laughs> okay yeah it's been a while since i've seen that one um all right yeah i think hopefully that's a a decent starting point or or uh i guess addendum to the slash film cast episode and i hope we didn't cover too much of the same territory there but um yeah that, that's what we got for you so hopefully you enjoyed that leanne uh and yes anybody else if you have any uh topics mailbag questions or or um yeah, like prompts or anything like that, feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns, and those prompts uh, to peter at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. You can find more about all the stories that we mentioned on today's show at slashfilm.com and linked inside the show notes of this episode. Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you all tomorrow.